So we're going to start Act 6 this evening, and I think we'll probably get somewhere into Act 6 because they are organically tied together, as you will see. And uh, let's start off, though, with a word of prayer before we begin the study. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O Christ our God, open our hearts and our minds to the words of the account of your servant, Stephen, and how the Holy Spirit clothed your early followers. May we learn from them. May we also imbibe with the same spirit by following after you and speaking with boldness, with clarity, and with faith in you. For it is to you we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and um, jump in because we have plenty to talk about. I've done a few recapping, so I think we're fine to go ahead and jump in with six here. Uh, would somebody like to start reading? Was that a uh, David Wait? I'm going to read? No, that's David. I'm swiveling. Uh-oh. I'm going to get sick. I'll read the first seven verses. There we go. <laughs> All right. Acts 6, verse, starting in verse 1. We are, for those who may be listening to audio version, we are using revised standard version um, just because. So, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. As we've seen in the first five chapters, uh, there has been a steady increase of the disciples, those who have listened to the word preached, um, especially by Peter, as he's been the main actor up to this point. And we've seen increase uh, adding uh, from Pentecost on those um, to the church. And we have now... Uh, well, we first encountered the issue with Ananias and Sapphira, as there had been apparently, I'm sure, lost to uh, history and the fact that it's not shared in the book of Acts, because I know any group of people, there were probably some problems in the day after Pentecost. Uh, there was Ananias and Sapphira as trouble, uh, as a problem within the community. And now we have an actual, I'll say communal problem. Uh, and it's specifically interestingly enough, tied to what we've been talking about, what has um, 
what has been a significant marker of what the early church has been like, which is that they've uh, sold all things and shared things together and lived together in one accord. I mean, they have all these kind of words. I don't think they all lived in a big commune. Uh, I think that they were actually a community that took care of each other. Um, and now we have a division and it's between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So what does, what, who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews? The Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks and the Jews, but not just Greeks, right? It's something a little bit more specific than Greeks. Hellenists because they were Greek Jews, right? They were, they were, um, as we saw in Pentecost, right? In the second chapter of uh, Acts, you've got everybody from under, uh, all around the Mediterranean there gathered uh, in the early church. So uh, these are all, as we see in, even in the gospels, there's encounters with uh, this diaspora Judaism. Uh, it's evident uh, throughout the New Testament uh, that there is a, so I say Greek, Greco-Roman Hellenicized Judaism or Jews that exist. Now, I'm going to take a sidebar here just for a second. If you read any kind of material about the New Testament, that's over, I would say, probably 30 or 40 years ago, uh, you would have been uh, and this is probably something that floats around a lot to this day, especially if you read stuff from the 19th century, which is usually the free stuff online. Uh, you'll find very much literature that talks about how the early church was this Jewish community. And this is also, I think it's Orthodox. We encounter this a lot with Protestants too. Uh, I think there's a reason for that, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, they'll very much talk about uh, the early church as being this kind of Semitic Jewish uh, expression of faith. And then what you have is then later a, um, this is another version of, it was uh, crystal clean at the beginning and then there was a, a great falling away, right? I'm sure most of us have heard different versions of this. One of these versions is that the, um, the Jewish original church basically got corrupted by Greeks and uh, Greek thinking, uh, Greek ways of doing things. So for example, this all shows up in a lot of even higher critical biblical scholarship. And a lot of it is because, and, there, and it's German stuff too. And a lot of that is because there is a presupposition in a lot of German scholarship that is a kind of Protestant and Lutheran presupposition. Uh, and it's kind of even, and it goes lock and step with kind of an evolutionary uh, approach to history as well. The beginning is pure, the beginning is uh, rooted in the original movement, and then, you know, you know institutions over time, they get bureaucracy, they get rules, <laughs> they get things that corrupt the original free expression that existed. Uh, I'm sure you've heard some of these tropes from the 60s on. Um, this is just kind of in our culture, and, and you see this as criticisms of uh, historic Christianity. Uh, you'll see, even see this as criticism of some of the fathers, uh, that they are so Hellenicized that they've lost some aspect of the true church and therefore we shouldn't pay attention to them. Uh, but the reality, so you're probably wondering, why is he talking so long about this? Besides the fact that it's all over the place uh, and infects a lot of biblical scholarship, even if you were to go to like um, 
is it Lifeway? What is the the Christian book uh, store that you could go down to Kingston Pike and get? Cedar Springs. Cedar Springs, or there's the, so there's Lifeway. There's these different basically Protestant. Uh, and if you go look at their Bible studies, they're probably going to talk like this uh, on some level. Uh, the reality of it is, uh, if you're looking at the New Testament, it's already been Hellenized in many ways. If you're looking at Second Temple Jewish literature that predates uh, the New Testament, but is post, uh, or say like apocryphal works or things that are past what the Protestant canon accepts as the Old Testament, uh, they're very thoroughly, if you read the wisdom of Sirach, if you read uh, these different um, works of Second Temple Judaism, you can already see the influence of Greek thought and them having to grapple with that, uh, deal with it, and then basically bring it underneath the, the beliefs of Judaism. So uh, there is very much a strong contingency in uh, the ancient Near East world or the Mediter Mediterranean world of Greek-speaking Hebrews, uh, it wasn't that they were um, somehow theologically opposed to what was going on at the temple, uh, et cetera. Well, there's all sorts of divisions and debates going on amongst Jews. I don't mean to downplay that, but um, what you have, I think, here mostly in this division is something that you're going to see throughout the New Testament, which is uh, the Hellenists and the Hebrews represent, uh, and we kind of see this in microcosm, I think the um, Luke in authoring this chapter is giving probably a dispute that, I'm saying probably, a dispute that happened in Jerusalem that's also going to be a microcosm of the entire later Pauline ministry, which is one of the major issues uh, that even has Paul and Peter facing off uh, at some point, which is basically we have uh, Greeks who are going to come in, who are not Jews beforehand uh, and the world that they come from and how do we incorporate them into the church? But you have here, this is not necessarily, I think the Hellenist is not necessarily a marker for um, non-Jews. I think it's, it's probably a marker uh, for Greek speaking uh, more non from Jerusalem folks uh, who would have either been before previous to this pious Jews who grew up in like Cappadocia or Cyprus or something, right? Like we saw with Barnabas. Um, or they could have been, as we encounter in the Gospels, uh, God fearing Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish and went through the process of uh, converting. They could have also been a part of the Hellenists. Um, and what is, their, what is the problem that they have? Daily distribution. Mm -hmm. So this is so obvious. Would, Go ahead. So would the Hellenists be included in the early, uh, in, in, the, in the group of early Christians as discussed earlier in Acts, or would they be a yeah. separate group? I think they would be representative of somebody like Barnabas, who is not okay. from Jerusalem. Uh, he's a Cypriot. Uh, that okay. you had all of the Cyrenian. I mean, as you'll see later, actually, I think it's helpful. Verse 9 of this chapter. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. You have a synagogue in Jerusalem that's full of people from other places. 
Okay. Uh, so I think those are the honest. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, it's fine. Uh, it's helpful. a large group of early Christians. And the Hebrew, when it talks about the Hebrews, it's talking about the disciples. <sighs> I think it's talk. I think it's talking about the Jews who would have been there in uh, Israel and in Jerusalem at the time. Okay, but well, I'm thinking of the disciples in particular because the disciples were all Hebrews, were they not? Of the twelve, yes. Oh, okay. Well, so what I'm Luke. Luke is not. Luke is not. Okay. All right. And as the author, and I think he he's writing. I mean, as you see, if you watch the Book of Acts. Start the Peter's the big guy at the beginning, and then who ends? It's Paul. And you have a basic shift of Petrine, Jerusalem-centric, Antioch-centric, and it just keeps until we end in Rome. Uh, so the book of Acts is exactly the fulfillment of uh, the prophecy of what they were talking about from Pentecost, but also uh, that the word is going to go forth from Zion, from Jerusalem out into the whole world. Um, as we sing on normal time for the apostles on a Wednesday night, since we're singing for the apostles, um, we will sing, uh, uh, well, for the Prochemenon for the apostles, that their voice has gone out into all the universe. Uh, this is part of that apostolic ministry. So we have a basic division that is a microcosm that will be the division that Paul spends a lot, vast amount of energy of his ministry. If you look through, Galatians, uh, you can make an argument that the entire book of Romans is a very long argument as to why uh, Jews and Greeks um, are fully within the fold of the church and can be there. But you can already see that there's some issues going on from a kind of Jerusalem-centric uh, world and Hebrew-speaking world into a broader Greek-speaking cosmopolitan world that the church is going to be moving towards. Would those and Greeks in, in Romans be these Hellenists in Acts or? No, I think, I think they, so I think we're talking about three different groups. I think the, the Hellenists would have been uh, Jews that would have been in Rome that would have been Greek speaking, but then there would have been Gentiles who had been brought into the fold at that time. Okay. My, okay. my main point is just that you can already see here that there's going to be some issues around I'll say Hellenism and kind of Hebraicism. Uh, exactly how do we relate to the broader world and in incorporating people? May I ask one more question? I'm sorry to be taking up so much time. You, you are out of questions for the rest of the hour, David. Sorry. I have a chart. <laughs> What's the question? My question is, and I've often wondered this, chronological time. Plato, Socrates, Jesus, Paul. Well, I know how Jesus and Paul. Plato and Socrates are older. I know, but I know they're older, but I've often wondered, and I've meant, always meant to look it up, and I've never tried to figure it out. Is it hundreds of years? Is it a hundred years? Is it, a, well, maybe I could just look it up. I, I think it's a, a pretty significant period of time. Um, quite significant period of time, actually. Uh, there have been works... <laughs> Uh, this is where I could call on a friend, a former professor of mine, a friend of mine, Father George Persinius, who did his, he teaches at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's a, Greek, a priest in the Greek Archdiocese. 
uh, does a lot of work on class, the classical world and the New Testament. And you can see there's all sorts of arguments for seeing a lot of parallels um, that there's almost even kind of uh, Odysseus-like things going on in Acts. Um, the fact that the way that Luke writes is similar, if I'm remembering correctly, it's similar to Greco-Roman biographies of the time. Uh, so, yeah, so I mean, on some levels it's like, what? And then on the others, it's like, of course, what else would they, <laughs> they're gonna read and write and act and interpret the things that they do at the time that they're, they're writing and doing these things. So um, that's not my, I am not a classicist, so. Okay, okay, okay. That's, that's fine, I guess, I, I, guess, I guess the real answer here is that, that Platonism, Aristotelianism, all those modes of thinking, the, the, the classic Stoics, they were very well established at this time and widely accepted among and the educated in the civilized world. We'll encounter them later. Okay, thank you. Okay. When we get to the Areopagus, when we when we get to Athens, we will encounter it. It does. They don't say, you know, I'm of Plato. I'm a Socrates. They don't do that. But he's definitely talking to other philosophers. Okay. Okay. Well, you'll get there much more quickly if you mute me. So let's go. <laughs> I think we'll probably go slow no matter what. That's how my pace is too. Um, the twelve, of course, here in verse two is. Um, the apostles, we replaced Judas with Messiah, Matthias, Messiah, Matthias, excuse me. Um, at the beginning of Acts, they summoned together the entire body of disciples, and uh, they decide that the community is needs some uh, order. So they say, we have a particular job, and we need some uh, folks to take care of this that is not just us. Uh, so they take seven men full of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and um, they, the apostles, are devote themselves to prayer and to ministry of the word, while these seven are to devote themselves to the service of tables. This pleased the whole multitude, and then they chose Stephen. Uh, I think it's very specific. It's noting here a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, who they note is a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, I think the names here are interesting too. Why, why, why would I think that the names here are interesting? We got some great names there. Don't you do. Yeah, you do. I I think there there's something there to say. There's a reason why you have some Greek names. Um, because the church uh, from the very beginning is going to be very mixed. And um, they have to choose folks who are going to be able to help uh, deal with the disputes that are going on here. So they're going to choose some uh, Greek speakers to be able to help make sure that the daily distribution in Jerusalem goes down well. So I think they're wise to choose some folks who would naturally feel inclined to help. Um, in verse 6, they set these seven before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. Uh, this laying of hands, uh, of course, is what we would uh, 
see as uh, ordination. What we, the word ordination is pretty far away from uh, the Greek. Oh boy, I just got myself into where I have to say the Greek word. Uh, herotonia, I believe is the way that you pronounce it, which is basically the laying on of hands, which is if you were to hear the Orthodox ordination services in Greek, that is the word that is used. It's basically the laying on of hands for uh, deacon, for priest, and for then a bishop as well. Did you just say that ordination is derived from the Greek word for laying on of hands? No. Okay. I said we use the word ordination, but the Greek word herotonia is something else. I, okay, I'm sorry. I'm trying. I don't know where the word ordination comes from. My guess it's super Latin is what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it's very far away from the, the Greek there. Um, do you all think there's any uh, significance for seven deacons? I mean, seven shows up uh, quite a bit all throughout scripture. So right. I'm assuming uh, number of completion. So um, Yeah, I think number of completion. I also think we have here... Uh, this is also, it's very much, as we, I think, said a lot in the last uh, class, uh, to ensure that we're thinking of the whole Old Testament when we're reading this. And I think uh, you need to think about uh, Moses saying, I can't handle all this, and I need some uh, help with the caseload. I need a bunch more, some administrative law judges or something out here to uh, help me deal with uh, how much stuff I have to work through. And I think... Um, this is not something, obviously, the text, uh, they don't see this as just administrative, right? They're not, in serving of tables, that doesn't mean uh, that this is some kind of lowly, um, you know, this is middle management that's going to deal with uh, the, the physicality of things. But the church uh, needed to choose men of good reputation and full of the, the Holy Spirit uh, and wisdom. And then, of course, uh, we have uh, the story of the lead, uh, the first deacon, uh, Stephen, that follows from this problem and solution of ordaining deacons. But I want us uh, to just think about verse 7 for a little bit before we move on to the story of Stephen more fully. The word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So my first question is, what do you think the significance is that the text says, and the word of God increased? I find that to be a very fascinating way to say the church grew. Yeah. But I, think, I think there's something else going on there. Yeah. Jesus is the word, the logos, the Yeah. I've also been thinking uh, when, it, cause that really jumped out at me when I was reading this text. And my kind of preliminary without digging and spending a lot of time researching it, but is throughout the prophetic literature, you very much have this understanding of like the word of God doing these things, uh, accomplishing things. And I think what you see in, uh, and we'll see this specifically in the face of Stephen, uh, that the word of God increasing is uh, the power of God being active among the people. Um, mm -hmm. which obviously I think would be Jesus Christ. Uh, how does Peter do his uh, miracles? 
it's in the name of Jesus, as they've been saying. Uh, they're very clear that they want to preach Jesus to the whole world. And that is how the word of uh, God is increasing. Jesus is increasing and there's uh, a multitude being added. Um, what do you all think about the fact that there's a great many priests being obedient to the faith? Not all. Not all of them. Okay. There's that. We didn't get everybody. Yeah, why, would it be, why would it be significant? Well, there's no, unless I misunderstand, there wasn't any organized Christian church to have priests at this point, was there? So those would have to be. Yeah, so that, right. Well, so this, these are, these are Levites. Huh? The, yeah, these are Levites. Levites. Yeah. 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 So what you have is the growth of the church is not just, um, I'll say the hoi polloi, but you, the, the church is actually uh drawing from all aspects of uh what their first who as jesus says throughout the gospels that he's first come to uh jerusalem and to the jews so it would make sense that there would be obedience uh to the faith among the priests as well yeah. because you have because you have um opposition coming from the temple they've already had it specifically from the, those who run the temple and so you have some folks who are the ones who serve the temple are the ones who are also being obedient to the faith. Um, the temple themes throughout Luke and Acts are strong. Uh, where do we open up Luke? Who are some of the first actors in the gospel of Luke? Oh dear. Um, Zechariah and Sarah. Where is Zechariah? In the temple. In the temple, being shushed, <laughs> being <laughs> silenced. Uh, <laughs> You, you, the temple, as you can see, um, why do they crucify Jesus? Because he speaks against the temple. Why are they going to be uh, angry uh, here with Stephen? It's because he speaks words against Moses and God. Um, and they've already had issues with the temple and the authorities of the temple. Uh, but the temple here, as you can see, uh, is something that we start in the temple and we're going to, um, the temple is going to be basically be expanding throughout uh, the world as the church grows. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there is an iconoclasm in the early church against the temple as it was, because as we already saw in some of the early chapters of Acts, they go up to the temple to do the prayers. There was, they, they were not, uh, they didn't uh, have vespers uh, with, um, you know, the Lord I've called and all that. They didn't have that stuff yet. Uh, but they were doing the prayers that they would have taught and known from their youth uh, that will take time for the church to transform over time to get the cycle of services that we know in the Orthodox Church. But the roots of the ideas of canonical hours of uh, praying in the morning, praying in the evening, uh, having a coming together and then discussing scripture and all these things, these are all obviously Jewish practices. So let's move to Stephen before I just... I could real quickly, Father, I'm beginning to get yep. an image here that, that, you know, contrary to what I've always kind of assumed or, or maybe been, in, I, I don't know, that, that there wasn't this, there was not this uniformity among Christians and there was not this uniformity within the temple. So it was one against the other. There was actually, there was a lot more confused and complex than that. There was division within the temple, and there was division within the early church. Is that fair? I mean, I, th I think you have division from the very beginning. And I don't just mean 
I mean, you can think of Judas as div divisive or not being on board with the project, even well, though he, well, sure. even, even though he gets, he's important to the project, <laughs> to what happens. Uh, you need him. Uh, but uh, I mean, Paul, so Luke acts uh, is older than the Pauline corpus, right? Okay. So what is Paul dealing with already? Lots of trouble. <laughs> oh yeah. So I think it, that, that's part of the reason why I actually opened up at the very beginning. And I said, here we see like actual trouble uh, uh, in the early church as a communal issue. And I said, it's probably because they just looked over the issues that they had the day after Pentecost because knowing groups of people, there's going to be an issue that's probably going to happen the day after everybody gets into the church. Then somebody's angry at somebody else for God knows what. So that's, just, that's humans. I'm sure you probably even had um, folks who fell away from the church within very quickly. Sure. Uh, I mean, you're looking at the Corinthian discourse and you've already got all sorts of things that would make us blush even today, even though we don't blush it very much. Um, so, yeah, I think, David, to say that there was already divisions and stuff going on in the church uh, very early on, yes. But as plain off the great many priests were obedient to the faith, there were also divisions within the temple. There was divisions within within the Sadducees and the Pharisees as as well. Right. It wasn't like, what I'm, all I'm trying to get to is this was not a necessarily a good guy, bad guy situation with, you know, these guys over here are wearing white and these guys over here are wearing black. Actually, it was, it, 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 it's, it's a bunch of different human beings. Humaning? <laughs> It's a, bunch of people, it's a bunch of people being human. Well, you know, we just, we always want to draw. And so a lot, you know, a lot of my Protestant upbringing, there was an awful lot of black and white and good guys and bad guys. And, and, yeah. And, and that's what I'm getting here is that, no, that's a, it's a mistake to think of Sadducees and Pharisees as bad guys. There's something I developed, I've learned in orthodoxy as time goes, as times have gone by. Um, I mean, I think that the Sadducees are definitely. About the Pharisees. <laughs> They're really. Yeah. The, it's funny because we usually think of the Pharisees as like the worst, right? Yeah, but they, they were the they were closer to Christianity than the Sadducees because they actually yeah. believed in the resurrection. They actually believed in the prophets. Yeah, the Sadducees didn't believe those things. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this doesn't account for all the variety that we know of existed of different parties within Judaism, like the Qumran community, um, the different folks who wrote, you know, Enoch, and all these other um, Second Temple literature that is not within the canon but it's helpful to know these books because they influence the tradition and the conversation right for example in the book of jude the argument over the body of moses is not something that occurs in the old testament it occurs uh, i forget which um second second temple jewish text um if you read some of the second temple jewish text uh where paul starts talking about uh the armor uh, and Ephesians 6, the armor of faith and uh, the helmet, the breastplate of righteousness and all this stuff. He's totally ribbing off of Second Temple Jewish literature that says, goes through this kind of taxonomy of uh, warrior gear uh, and faith and how the Lord is a warrior. Um, that's not new or unique to Paul. It's something that he is 
riffing off of and using that already existed in text at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, so it wasn't like you had, um, <laughs> uh, you had the Baptists, the Church of Christ, and the Methodists in a, a little country town, and all three of them are kind of going back and forth, and one of them is actually right and everybody else is wrong. Uh, it's more complicated than that. Because I think that was, I mean, that was the context that I read a lot of this stuff early on. Um, it's not very helpful because no. religion was way more complicated back then than, yeah, certain forms of Protestantism now. Yeah. So uh, who would like to read uh, verses 8 through 15? I can. Please. And Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and, the, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, arose and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and set up fault witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Ooh. So, Stephen, full of grace, power, did great wonders and signs. So we have Stephen continuing uh, the Petron <laughs> activity that we saw in the book of Acts so far. And now we have this particular group of folks who are a little uh, angry with Stephen. And this is now a different group, right? With Peter... Uh, before it was the Sadducees and uh, the ones who ran the temple. Now we have a synagogue of, um, I'll say it, Hellenists here, basically, uh, who are not of the church, who got issue with Stephen. What is their issue uh, with Stephen? That uh, they, what they understood, told him to say was that he was speaking blasphemy against Moses and God and uh, that he said that Jesus would destroy the, the temple and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Man, Stephen's really after everything, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, I love it. The issue that the, why they have this is not, at least the text says, it's not just because they disagreed with him. It's because they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. There's something in the way the, this man full of grace and power uh, spoke that they, they had to secretly instigate men. Again, we have been talking about how the book of Acts uh, is the uh, extension of the life, or I'd say the form of Jesus's life through the early church. So what is going to happen again, as it did to Peter, uh, you're going to have secret instigation to trump up some charges against Stephen that are actually mm, very much the same charges they have against Jesus because he's teaching the things that Jesus taught. Uh, and what are they the most concerned about? It's fascinating. Chrysostom picks up on this, but 
Chrysostom picks up and he says, um, this is me summarizing Chrysostom, because if I try to read it, it would, we would be here for another 30, 45 minutes. Um, he talks about how they're so obsessed with Moses. They, they're not obsessed with God. They're, it's like against Moses and God, uh, and they'll change the, the customs, which Moses delivered to us. Uh, so as once we get into Acts 7, which <laughs> I don't think we're going to do tonight, uh, but we can at least poke at it, we will see how Stephen uh, uses Moses because he very specifically uh, uses Moses to make his argument uh, against these men. Um, what would Stephen, what would it be that Stephen would be talking against the holy place in the law? What do you think that would be? What would that be? Moses and God. The one that also against this holy place in the law, I'm looking at uh, verse 13. Well, he's referring back to, isn't he, about, 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 about uh, Jesus, you know, destroy this temple and raise it back up in three days? Yes, I think that's exactly what they're talking about. So Stephen just would have been teaching that, and that got Jesus in trouble, and it's getting Stephen. Him and Joe. What would be the customs that would be changed? This is a question. I'm, I'm wondering out loud on this one. Um. Like the sacrifice of animals is one that I could think of. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. One thing that confuses me here, if I may. Yes. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue, a synagogue. Yeah. I am confused. What are you confused about? I didn't think the synagogues arose until the fall of the second temple. No, synagogues already existed. They existed from time of exile. Well, they did. Jesus stands up in the beginning of Luke in the synagogue, and when they give him oh, Isaiah right. for Jubilee. Okay. Okay, okay. So the synagogue of the freemen. I mean, I think they realize that if he's actually uh, right about the Messiah, things are going to change. That also means that Moses is, uh, at least what they tell, they can tell, they think that Mo the, their entire religion is like what they understand is is kind of imploding. So they're just going to grab on to what they know, even if what they know, as Stephen will tell them they should be listening and looking at who the Messiah is and how he fulfills this instead of uh, grasping on a Moses that is not a, tr the, a real, the true Moses, according to Stephen into the early church. Yeah. When you talk about the customs which Moses delivered to us, I would think, of course, when we talk about the 10 commandments is the Leviticus where they go on and on and on and on and on. There's much yeah, it's more Leviticus. Huh? Is that Leviticus? Yeah, but I mean, yeah. There's, I mean, there's all these rules, and of course, you know, you just take not working on the Sabbath and this whole complicated system of what it means to work on the Sabbath and what it doesn't mean to work on the Sabbath and everything else. And so you've got this. Uh, uh, I'm assuming, without knowing the details of it, I'll bet you at times it was a very elegant structure. 
<laughs> you know, and, and, and the man created structure of rules and regulations in order to be sure to comply with the law of Moses. And now, you know, people like first Jesus and now people like Stephen, they're going to tear that whole thing down. They're gonna tear down the whole. They're gonna tear down the entire. They're gonna tear down the entire structure. You know? Which is their, which is their understanding of what, right? Which is their understanding of what it means to exactly. follow God. You know, next thing you know, they're gonna get rid of the College of Cardinals and. <laughs> <laughs> We've got all so, these wonderful structures in place. We can't. We can't break them. <laughs> Verse fifteen, I think, uh, fleshes out. And there's actually an interesting uh, standpoint against what they're concerned about. What do you think of, that the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel? What does what is that? I'm not sure, but it's what made me cross myself. Uh, <laughs> Who else had the face of an angel? Moses, after receiving the law, they, he had to veil his face because the people couldn't stand to look at him. Oh, very good. Yes, that's right. And also uh, Christ during the transfiguration. Right. So Stephen gets a Moses face. Well, as they're so upset about what Stephen's going to do, he glows with the same glory of Moses as Chrysostom actually picks up on this. Right. He said, Chrysostom says, for this was the grace, this was the glory of Moses. God made him thus gracious of visage now that he was about to say somewhat thus at once by his very look to awe them. There's some Victorian lingo for you. For there are, yes, there are faces full fraught with spiritual grace, lovely to them that love, awful to haters and enemies. Stephen shines with the face of Moses, and he begins to speak. I don't know how far. We've, we've got only 10 minutes left here. Let me. I want to say something else before we get to Act 7, because I, I think we should probably save Act 7 until next week, because if we start into this, it's going to be... I mean, I'll see bet. how long this. <laughs> I'll bet. Who else? Uh, Stephen actually sounds like somebody else besides Moses that we've encountered just in the book of Acts. It's something that uh, Chrysostom picks up on. The again. fact that in verse 15, that Simon, uh, uh, his face there, but also the fact uh, earlier in Acts when we encountered Barnabas, he was described in the same way that Stephen is. Uh, Barnabas was described as a good man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, which is the same uh, description of Stephen here. Uh, basically, the early church is raising up uh, in the same way that God did uh, in Old Testament men to lead and uh, to not just men, there's going to be women throughout the book of Acts as well, as there are through the Old Testament, um, to lead the church, to speak things uh, for the church. And for Stephen, um, this is, uh, his face shines like the face of an angel. And we have, I'm tempted here to, to actually uh, end here, not at the end of, the, of six, but actually at the end of seven, weirdly enough. 
but flow with me for a second. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the bottom of chapter seven. 754. Uh, actually, you know what? Before we get there, we'll see throughout the sermon that Stephen preaches. I'm just now actually, this just dawned on me. His whole turn for Moses uh, and what the issue is uh, for this synagogue, these men that have turned against him. Let's actually look at 52 and 53. Start at 51, actually. Yeah, I noticed stiff-necked people. That sounds familiar. I heard that a lot growing up. Uh, not about, well, I was stiff-necked. I still am. But I just mean, I heard that. That was one of those favorite phrases. Uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's also Deuteronomy language. Uh, use the same stiff-necked and uncircumcised. That's what it resonated with in me, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did. So great. You had Moses, you had Abraham, uh, but your fathers didn't listen to them. <laughs> and you're still not listening to them. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He, he'll, he'll do this throughout, and he'll say that angels uh, are the ones who gave the law uh, to Moses. This also sounds like the book of Hebrews, right? That the, there's angelic ministries uh, in giving the law and Israel. Uh, so you have Stephen as uh, an angelic voice uh, who delivers to them now not uh, in the same line of prophets as uh, Abraham uh, Moses, uh, etc. But he's connecting himself and saying, you know, Jesus is also is the one they were all, all talking about. And now you're going to react to me in the same way that your fathers reacted to all of them. You say that you follow Moses, you're worried about the destruction of the customs of Moses and the holiness of this place. But you're the reason why uh, you've missed it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just, I, I, it, it just came together for me for whatever reason about the angelic ministrations of, uh, that he focuses on that he talks about an angel being the one present, uh, to give the law to Moses. Um, this language is exactly, I think part of the reason why his face is described as angelic in the same way that Moses, uh, his face is described as angelic. He puts himself in the same line of prophets um, this is the most intense sermon, uh, in the book of Acts where Stephen really kind of goes full on and does, uh, a sermon of exegesis, but also attack in a way that Peter never, we always kind of look at Peter as being kind of obstinate or, you know, out there ready to, uh, you know, put your dukes up. Uh, Stephen goes out right for it. Um, I don't want to, I, I keep on wanting to go further than, but I want to stop. If I, I don't want to ruin seven. If I could just say one more thing, it's, it's like, it's like Stephen. Stephen is like another Moses and they are 
initially angry at him because he is disrupting this intellectual structure of laws, rules, and regulations they have built up around Moses. They are so in love with their idea of Moses. They're, yeah, they're so in love with their own thinking and, 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 and their own yeah, they're so in love with their own thinking, and and and, uh, and and I guess this just resonates with me a lot because I feel like this a lot about Christianity in general. People just fall in love with their own intellectual structures. I, I just listened to an hour today of somebody. It's a, it's a English group called uh, Radical Orthodoxy, and bless their hearts, they're not really orthodox, much less radical, but. You know, it is so... David, how did you get onto radical orthodoxy? Huh? A friend of mine, Charles Obenshine. Uh, uh, but anyhow... We should talk about radical orthodoxy sometime. Well, I mean, but, but I mean, it's, it, it is such an intellectual approach, and they're so in love with their intellectual approach. And who who did of, you... Who, who was talking? Uh, it was an interview with... Uh, John Milbank. Oh, yeah, it was John Milbank. Was, I mean, was it Sotiris interviewing him? Yeah. A great, a great guy? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you well, know, that's what I was thinking throughout the whole thing. Charles is sharing, my friend Charles is sharing this with me because he thinks I really like it. And I wrote back to him and I said, you know, I, I am sympathetic in a lot of ways, but I said, frankly, it's not orthodoxy, much less radical. It seems to me a bunch of Western intellectuals that are setting themselves up so that maybe they will be able to receive but that's as much that's as much as I can say for it. But anyhow, relating that back to this, do you see what I, I don't know if mm -hmm. it's similar or not, Father, it's the same thing. This is huge intellectual structure that the you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees had built up around this and all their rules and so on and so forth, which you know, Jesus just walks through the field and on a Sabbath and tells the disciples to eat the grain. Well, so I th I think there is space for, I mean, I think the fathers, there's space for intellectual um, work and the need for it in certain spots. Well, but I, I think what, what you, I know that you're not opposed to that because I know you, um, yeah. but there's certain things that seem to ring false because they seem to get lost in their own um, cul-de-sacs. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying, I guess the point I'm, well, we're going deeper than I intended to, but I guess what I would say is, is that the problem is we fall in love with it. And we fall, in love, we fall in love with the intellectual process and the spirit gets lost. And then you got a guy named like Stephen who comes along who is full of the Holy Spirit. And he's very disruptive. He's also the seed of a young man named Saul. Yeah. to uh, encounter something that yeah. with his own preconceptions, his own uh, vigor and his own love for what he believed to be true at the time. Uh, yeah. And you have, I, I think as you, it speaks with the spirit, but he also acts with the spirit, right? I know that you wouldn't juxtapose them, but he does exactly what Jesus does in his death. Mm -hmm. He asks for Jesus to receive his spirit. And he says, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, Saul would be in alignment with the uh, uh, synagogue of the freedmen at this time, wouldn't he? 
Uh, I don't know if if there's a direct uh, relationship there with with them as well, much I as he would have been on one. But I mean, in the general, yeah, yeah. in the general, yes. thinking that these Christians are a threat. He's yes, as we see going into chapter eight, just a little glimpse. Just even though the um, I don't know the uh, the not in the text but helpful subtitle of Saul persecutes the church. Um, he, um, yeah, as, as the text says, ravages the church, yeah. taking folks off to prison. Mm. So, and this is where also where we're going to see Philip, who uh, is also one of the deacons who are ordained. I, I, it's fascinating as you see the word um, growing, that it, it moves, it's very focused on the 12 at the beginning. And then the broader group of uh, that's with them at Pentecost as well, but they're focused on the 12 because they need to replace the one. Then it's the broader group of disciples and, and the 12. Then you have Pentecost. You have Peter kind of leading, but they seem to be growing and growing. And it's just, we're just going to keep seeing this. Uh, and then Paul then will take it and he will then spread it throughout the empire. So Stephen is a um, fascinating uh, figure in the book of Acts. He's pivotal. And I, next time, I hope for us to read through uh, chapter seven uh, because the way that he articulates kind of salvation history um, is interesting to uh, contemplate and it helps give kind of a mini um, history of what um, the early church would have believed was going on, uh, how to understand the Old Testament. I love that he, he, I'm going to stop here after this, but I love that he starts this, and Chrysostom picks up on this too. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. The fact that he says the God of glory is, I would love to just sit down one day with the book of Acts and all these little phrases, because I keep mentioning it like, oh, I love that little phrase, or that's a fascinating phrase. I'm sure if I actually spent a few hours, I could, because I don't honestly have the time to do that right now with all these little phrases, uh, well, just go through the Old Testament and say, where, where is this, uh, is this in the Septuagint, this phrase, the God of glory? And then I bet I would stumble across some stuff and be like, he's actually drawing upon, this is the language of, et cetera, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he's drawing on that. This is, you know, one of the great upshots or benefits of being able to read scripture uh, again and again and again is that it's an endless book uh, that's not just an intellectual platform that we can keep adding, you know, layers to, but they all um, are kind of constantly, I mean, we can treat it like that. Uh, but if we were to read it with an open heart and with um, prayerfully, we come across something like Stephen with the face of an angel and with someone who is full of the Holy Spirit and a good man uh, who will stand up um, to those who are false witnesses and preach the truth. Uh, and that's encouraging to us. It uh, encourages us to that know that we have been clothed with the same Holy Spirit that he was clothed with. Uh, that his, him being full of grace and power and wonders and signs, uh, I would argue is not just because um, he was ordained to the diaconate as if it was somehow those things are limited to ordained clergy or something. Um, 
they wouldn't have the exact, um, they're developing the ideas of what it means to have kind of specific ministries uh, to serve um, as priests and deacons, etc. So let's uh, keep Stephen uh, asking for his prayers and to uh, next week look at his words and his sermon that he gives to the synagogue of the freedmen. Any uh, lasting points or questions? And the people of God say, nope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I'm going to stop the recording here. Do you want to stop?